This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. It's said that when Buddha was asked abstract philosophical or metaphysical questions, he refused to answer, saying that was not his function, which instead he likened to a physician whose job it was to relieve suffering. And he famously gave the parable of a man who's been shot by a poisoned arrow. And asked whether in that position, would you simply try to remove the arrow or first find out the age and nationality and hometown of the person who shot it or the species of the bird whose feathers were being used in the, to make the arrow or the kind of wood that the shaft of the arrow, all those sorts of questions, which he felt were analogous to the empty metaphysical questions that he would not answer. But we need to directly address suffering itself, just as a doctor would. Now, it's as a reply to why he would not answer certain kinds of questions, the metaphor of Buddha as physician makes a lot of sense. But it introduces an analogy or a metaphor which we can take too literally. Just as we can take too literally the idea of mental illness or addiction is a disease. Uh, these are, in certain circumstances, very useful metaphors. And yet, with any metaphor, there'll be, there'll be a limit to its usefulness. And if we've taken the metaphor literally, we will never understand when we, it's reached that limit and when it's time to find a new metaphor. I was reminded of this um, <clears throat> looking at a review of a new book called On Consolation uh, by Michael Ignatiev, who some of you will um, remember as the biographer of Isaiah Berlin. Uh, 
And the review quotes him as saying, this is in the New York Review of Books, if any of you want to look it up. That there's a limit to the usefulness of thinking of suffering as an illness from which we need to recover rather than a dimension of human experience that we need to understand and come to terms with. And that resonated with what I've been reading in Tolstoy's War and Peace about the nature of suffering. That it was not simply something to be gotten through, but it was itself a mode of perception or wisdom into our true nature and that our, the real obstacle in our lives was a greedy indulgence in too much, not uh, suffering from, from lack. Now, obviously, there are all sorts of dimensions of suffering that we want to be able to re relieve. There are illnesses that we want to treat, poverty that we want to relieve, uh, all sorts of uh, prejudice and injustice that we want to eliminate. And when we think of suffering in terms of some kind of disruption of our natural order of how, or our social order, then the metaphor of Ill, an illness that we're trying to treat makes sense. But I thought of it also uh, as I do a lot of things these days in terms of uh, aging. Jessica and I are in our 70s, just had birthdays. And birthdays at this age uh, are reminders of mortality as much as they are causes of celebration. But aging, I think, is also a good metaphor or analogy for a lot of kinds of suffering. It's not something we're trying to relieve. We don't expect it to go away. There are obviously all sorts of things we can do to age uh, healthfully. We can take care of our, our bodies, our health, eat well, exercise, all that sorts of things. But that won't change the fundamental fact of aging and mortality. You can do it well or you can do it badly, but you're going to do it. Aging in that sense is not an illness we're trying to cure. 
it's a fact of life. It's inseparable from what it is to be alive. And we have to come to terms with it. And in our practice, most of how we deal with suffering is much more analogous to how we deal with aging than how we deal, deal with illness. At the most basic level, when we sit with restlessness or physical pain or emotional pain or confusion of our thoughts, all of these things are things we're trying to simply stay with, to contain, to experience, to really see as part of what it's like to be alive and embodied. We may begin practice with an idea that we're going to attain a state of ease or equanimity or physical suppleness such that we'll sit comfortably with no pain, we'll sit peacefully with no disturbing thoughts or emotions. And like taking care of our health in old age, there's a, a degree at which those things are attainable. And yet, there's always a limit. There's always a boundary to what we can attain and what we can control. And our real practice starts when we reach that boundary, when we reach that limit. We may go a long time thinking our practice is everything that goes before reaching that limit, attaining the states that we want to attain. But the longer we do this, the more we see that practice is really about what happens when we bump into those limits of what's controllable, what's attainable. The review of the uh, Ignatiev book uh, also quotes Isaiah Berlin uh, near the end of his life when someone asked him uh, after all he's learned and studied uh, what does he think is the meaning of life? Uh, dumb interviewer's question. Uh, and he basically answered I don't think life has any meaning at all. And I take great comfort in that. But he spent his life as a historian of ideas. And he knows perfectly well that part of what we do as human beings is, is give meaning to our life. We make meaning. And that's a fundamental part of what means to be human. We're meaning makers. But we 
can confuse ourselves if we think that we're meaning finders. If we think that we're going to discover the meaning of life the way we're going to discover equations to describe gravity or, or solve mathematical problems. That and in some sense there are laws and meanings out there for us to discover. When it comes to our life, the meaning is what we make. And when we talk about a certain kind of suffering and what counts as a consolation for suffering, a big part of what matters to people is that one, they have a sense that their suffering has meaning, and second, that they're not alone, that what they're going through connects them to people and connects them to a broader community and human experience rather than isolates them. But the problem is uh, so often that what we suffer at the end of life is precisely a feeling of disconnection or isolation and a loss of meaning. When we talk about the effects of trauma, uh, one of the things it does is give us the sense that we are having an isolating experience, that we've gone through something that no one else can understand, that it's unspeakable and incommensurable with ordinary life. That it's precisely the effect of trauma, as uh, Bob Stalero writes about, to cut us off from the world, that we lose a relational home and become, in our own minds, isolated minds. And it is this restoration of our intrinsic interconnectedness that is crucial to any kind of healing of trauma. And there the word healing uh, does make sense because this is a kind of disruption in our natural or healthy experience of connectedness. A large part of what we do in this practice is not the healing of suffering, but the contextualization of suffering. That we come to see our suffering like our aging 
as part of a shared human experience. And part of what we do in our sitting practice is sit together, to sit with other people in a ritualized, disciplined way as part of a tradition that in itself enacts connection and interdependency. It's an important part of why we do not do this practice entirely on our own. The practice itself is supposed to be a reminder of our interconnectedness. That is the it's a fundamental thing that we enact by our collective zazen. We sometimes read about or maybe experience moments of realization in which we can feel our oneness with everything, our oneness with life. Those are can be wonderful experiences. But oneness does not depend on having some exotic, transcendent experience. Our oneness is what is already the basic fact of our lives, that we are all in it together. And we are all it together that who we are, who we are individually and who we are collectively is never separable. And an experience of separation or isolation is always a breakdown product, a fragmentation of an essential pre-existing connection. And just as our zazen, our sitting, in Dogen's terms, enacts our enlightenment, enacts the sense of this moment is it. So our sitting together in a sangha enacts our basic interconnection and restores us to a sense of oneness through what we do, not through some exotic inner experience that we're going to have uh, sitting by ourselves on a cushion. <laughs> 